welcome to The Interpreter's Output. In this episode of the Meet the Translator podcast series, I chat to Sabrina Spacanti all about interpreting. Sabrina will tell us all about her job and what her life looks like as an interpreter. She'll also talk about the challenges of interpreting and the rewards and share her favourite jobs with us. Sabrina also offers some great tips and answers all the questions you sent in, so you'll find this episode incredibly valuable if you're thinking of becoming an interpreter. It's also really interesting for anyone who already works as an interpreter or translator, or anyone who's just curious about the industry. This episode is a lovely long one, so grab a cup of tea and a snack and enjoy. Hi Sabrina, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I've been really looking forward to this episode. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, thanks, and thank you for having me. I'm really excited about this. So can you tell me a bit about yourself? What do you do and how did you become an interpreter? So I'm a native Italian speaker. I'm an interpreter and translator. And I've started working in this industry in 2016, I think. Yeah, my very first assignment was in 2016. Then I uh, started freelancing full-time since 2018 when I got my master's degree in uh, interpreting and translation. So I've always, uh, you know, studied in Italy. That's where I attended university for my BA and my MA, but I'm an army daughter. So uh, I've moved around a lot, uh, once or twice, as we'd say. And I've lived in a lot of different cities, even within Italy. And then I graduated high school from uh, in Portugal. I worked at the U.S. Embassy in Rome. So I've always been around multiculturalism and languages and so on. So that was kind of, you know, a pre-designed path for me, <laughs> I guess one would say. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I've chosen interpreting and translation mainly because I like challenges, I'd say. And Mm -hmm. it looked like the the single greatest challenge that one might have when working with uh, languages. So now I specialize in insurance and finance. These are my two strongest suits. But I also do lots of marketing and food and wine because, well, that's a huge passion of mine. If you've seen my Instagram stories, you'll know probably. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm always posting about it or not. (laughs) So yeah, that's basically how I came to be an interpreter and translator. It's so interesting that you've sort of traveled around so much. And I bet you've had to travel around a lot. I mean, probably not the past year, but before that, you probably had to travel around a lot for the interpreting as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I still remember my very last assignment uh, in 2020. It was the end of February and it was in Malta, actually. That was the last time I got on a plane for work, you know, for business reasons, yeah, and I miss that so much. I mean, 2019 was a crazy year. If I wasn't on a plane, I was on a train. And if I wasn't on a train, I was mm-hmm. probably going somewhere for an assignment or something. So yeah, that that was that was life pre-corona. <laughs> wow, it must have been so nice to be able to travel around so much. Yeah, mainly because of all the people you, you get to know. So what actually... Like, what is an interpreter? What do you do? And how is it different from a translator? Because I know a lot of people outside of the industry sometimes get confused. Yeah. Um, what's an interpreter? What's a translator? So can you just sort of define yeah, sure. what it is? So the, the main and most obvious difference, I would say, is that a translator works with the written word and an interpreter works with the spoken word. And there are different types of interpreting. So you have consecutive interpreting where you basically take notes uh, with, a, with a very weird and individualized code. You know, every interpreter has their code, mm-hmm. then it's kind of a bit secret. No, I mean, it's not. 
<laughs> but it's very individual. And then you have perhaps the most famous one, so simultaneous interpreting, which a lot of people still refer to as simultaneous translation. There's not so much awareness outside of the industry as to what the difference between a translator and interpreter may be. But basically, as I saw once on the internet, that an interpreter is someone who does precision guesswork based on unreliable data. <laughs> so you basically have to <laughs> roll with the punches, I'd say. I sometimes jokingly say that I'm a professional roller with the punches, <laughs> if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, and in terms of uh, major differences, well, of course, your output, so it's spoken versus written, and mm -hmm. it's much more time sensitive, even when you're not interpreting simultaneously. Uh, for instance, if you're doing a consecutive assignment or even a liaison one where you don't have to take notes because there are really, there are really short sentences, you don't have time to look at words. So you have to keep up uh, with everything that's being said. And, you know, of course, you're working in front of people or there are people listening to you who rely on you to understand what's going on. And this is a huge responsibility, of course. Uh, it can be stressful. It can be really stressful. Plus, uh, you know, for instance, in simultaneous interpreting, there is a thing that's called decollage. So basically how much time you leave before uh, you start saying something. So when you first hear a sentence and when you first start translating it or interpreting it, so that's the collage. And you have to really manage that because you can't fall too much behind. So that's another big difference, right? Because if you see a sentence written down on a document or on your computer, you have all the time in the world, well, theoretically mm -hmm. at least, <laughs> within your deadline, yeah. you know, to consider it and play around with it, look for synonyms, etc. And that's something you cannot really do while interpreting. Mm. I can't imagine trying to listen and speak at the same time because I guess sometimes you have to sort of if they're just continuing their speech or whatever they're saying they just keep talking and you might be trying to translate the previous sentence but you're still having to listen to the current sentence that they're saying and Bruce I can't I just can't I don't know how <laughs> your brain <laughs> can do all of those things at the same time plus you actually have to listen to yourself because you have to monitor your output because you know, as you said, it's really demanding on the brain mm -hmm. and you have to pay attention to what you're actually saying. So that's why you can fall too much behind because otherwise you're trying to deal with basically three different conversations at the same time. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, but it's, it's, it takes time. It takes training and it's not everybody's cup of tea, of course. Uh, but that doesn't mean mm -hmm. that you shouldn't try it anyway. If you want. Yeah. Let's talk about pre- pandemic what would a typical day in your life as an interpreter look like so I should be completely honest and mention that no two days are alike but when I do have some sort of routine I usually get up at around 7 a.m I'm a pretty early bird and I would do yoga or workout in the morning if I had for instance an assignment in the, in the afternoon then I'd start working on whatever project I had going on. So I also do transcriptions and I also do a consultancy or I do have to study for an upcoming interpreting assignment. So that's usually my schedule. Then lunch, uh, cook for lunch, you know, I love cooking. So I, I do that every day. Then more work uh, or CPD in the afternoon, depending on whatever I have left on my schedule. Uh, lots of planning. So I adjust my, my planning for the day and for the week and for the month as I go, because I'm a, kind of a control freak. 
sorry, not sorry. Uh, <laughs> and then if I had to go out, you know, for an assignment, depending on where it would be, or if I had to go uh, to Rome, because I was teaching there last year, I still am this year, but of course, everything's being done remotely now. So I would basically spend, spend lots of time preparing for the classes or an interpreting assignment and whatnot, and then actually do the job. <laughs> yeah, we get to that part sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so how often, or how many jobs would you have like interpreting jobs per week or per month and how how much of your work day or work life are you actually traveling for so if I have to think about of course pre-corona because well now we're all stuck home Mm -hmm. but I would say it was about 50 50 so 50 percent interpreting and 50 percent everything else so translation transcriptions and so on and I would average around three to five assignments per month at the least. Uh, But there were months where I had multiple assignments throughout the whole month because an assignment can even last for three to four, five days, you know, depending on on what kind of job it is. Because last year, no, actually two two years ago now, I had a job that lasted like 10 days. Uh, It was so hard, so difficult and so long. And by the end of it, I just couldn't wait to be home again. So yeah, it it kind of depends. I mean, yeah, that would be the minimum. So three to five per month, then with variable duration. Wow. I can't imagine having to (laughs) focus for that many days all at once doing so much. That's crazy. It was really taxing. Obviously, last year has been different. How has the pandemic affected your life and your job? Uh, so surely at the beginning, there, were, there was a dip uh, in, t- in terms of demand, in terms of work, which was actually nice for some time because I had time to rest, which uh, I didn't do a lot of before. Uh, I was always like, chasing the latest project or assignment and I was happy that way, but I really needed to take some time down. And then, of course, everything's moved online. So I think last year... After the pandemic started, I only had two in-person assignments when the situation was looking a little brighter here uh, in Italy. But uh, aside from that, yeah, everything else has been moved online, which is completely another kettle of fish because it's so much more tiring than doing the actual job like in person. I remember getting off my, my first call for an interpreting assignment and it lasted two hours. So, well, of course, I worked with another colleague because we always work in pairs. And I remember getting off and taking the headphones off and taking a huge, like, deep breath. And I was like, this feels like eight hours of work instead of two. I mean, it was so much more stressful because, you know, you have to take care of the technical part as well. Uh, If there is an issue with your connection or if the headphones don't work. Or if somebody can hear you, you have to log into the platform and, you know, coordinate with your booth mate because uh, it's not a given anymore. It's not like you have this person beside you and you can just say, okay, let's switch or, you know, write down the numbers or words or I have to go to the bathroom, you know, it's mm-hmm. everything is via chat now. So that's another distraction. Yeah, I can imagine. That's another thing as well. So you always work with a partner. How, yeah. how does that work? Like, how do you do, I don't know, five, 10 minutes each at a time and alternate? Or how, how does that work? 
it all boils down to the chemistry you have with your boothmate. And that's a really important uh, thing to factor in, you know, when choosing who to work with. Because, of course, you want to have someone who's knowledgeable about the matter at hand and who you work with before. So you know how to handle this type of things. Like, normally, I mean, theoretically, the average shift or session per person would be half an hour. Because after that, your brain is like, no, just give me a break. <laughs> so really, no, your, your output really deteriorates quite quickly after the 30 minutes mark. But with RSI or remote simultaneous interpreting or remote interpreting in general, I've seen a trend uh, of like shifts being much, much shorter, not even like not even 50 minutes. So, yeah, you you just, you know, you prepare beforehand, you talk with your boothmate and say, okay, do you want to start or should I start? Let's change whenever the speaker changes, but that's not always a given because, for instance, if you're in a conference and you know that that person's going to speak for 15 minutes, you can just as well decide to switch when the speaker changes as well. But, I mean, Italians in general and people at conferences are not really known for being on time. So you would risk like going on for 45 minutes because somebody just won't stop talking. <laughs> uh, so we usually try to find the perfect spot in between a sentence or the other or when it makes sense just to switch with your boothmate or partner, mm -hmm. just to make sure that whoever's listening to you still has as seamless an experience as possible. But yeah, that's usually the gist of it. Okay. So do you pick one boothmate and then you do all of your jobs with that same boothmate? So when you get clients, do you always contact the clients with both of you together or? Uh, well, it depends on the client, uh, because for instance, agencies may reach out to you and ask you to go on an assignment and they've already pre-picked the boothmate or the partner to go for you. But for instance, with my direct clients, I'm the one who can, you know, suggest or recommend someone uh, if they do not know, or even agencies who may not know somebody else who works in that language combination. I may suggest a colleague uh, I know who's, well, of course, working in that language pair and then who's knowledgeable who's an expert or specializes in that specific uh, area or field of course personal preference is important I mean I didn't really have any bad experiences with anyone I mean I, I tend to work well with pretty much anyone I've worked with so far uh, but I know that for instance uh, that person is not so happy to work on say financial matters or finance in general so I won't ask her or him to come work with me on that mm -hmm. that makes sense so what are the most challenging aspects of your job well there are a few <laughs> well I would say <laughs> Anything revolving around being a freelancer and having a business, of course, but that's kind of universal, I would say. If I, if I had to pick the single most stressing part, uh, stress management, of course. Because if you're not good at public speaking, and if you're not brazen sometimes enough to just fake your way through an impossible speaker or an impossible speech, you may start to panic and lose your train of thought or people may notice that you're actually struggling. And since there are so many misconceptions about uh, interpreters and translators in general, I mean, that can be damaging for the whole industry because a lot of people will think that way. Oh, she was not a professional. She was not good. So 
all interpreters and translators are not good and whatnot. Another very practical aspect, <laughs> I would say, is that you have a rough idea of when you'll start working, but you never know when exactly you will be done. So it kind of makes it hard to play and to plan your day around it because I have never been on a conference that has finished according to schedule, like ever in five years. It has never happened. <laughs> wow. Either before, either after. I mean, I'm talking about hours, not just, you know, a couple of minutes or half an hour. Then another very practical aspect of interpreting is uh, excessively fast speakers. So people who are not mindful of the fact that they're being translated. So they just go like crazy and you actually struggle to keep up with them or even worse, people who don't finish up their sentences. So they'll be like talking about the sun and the sky and, and whatnot. And then in the middle of the sentence, they just stop and go somewhere else. And you're stuck there and you're <laughs> like, so what do I do with this? Because the people who are listening to you, they do not know what's being said. So they have no idea that it's actually the speaker who decided to cut that part in half, basically, and discard it and just go somewhere else with their speech. And you risk like sounding like a hopeless idiot <laughs> because, I mean, you, you cannot put words in other people's mouths, right? I mean, unless you really know what you're doing. But that's always a risk because mm -hmm. someone may come up and say, oh, I heard you said A. Uh, and the speaker may say, but I never said that. So it's on the interpreter. Yeah. Or I would say, oh, yeah, people with very thick accents or people who are not uh, talking in their native language. That's always, uh, I mean, sometimes it's helpful because they really have to think about what they're, what they're saying and they slow down. Other times it's just a confused mess. <laughs> so, yeah, another very practical aspect is uh, clients not being, how should I say this, used or educated to sending preparation material beforehand. So they're like, okay, we have this conference. We need two interpreters for the Italian English booth. That's it. And you're like, yeah, can I have, I don't know, an agenda, a list of speakers, or if there are going to be slides, can you send them over beforehand so that I can check them out and really study, you know, and prepare on whatever is being done. Because unlike translators, interpreters can be more versatile. I mean, you don't necessarily need to be the utmost expert in that given area to work in a specific field. It's not like, I mean, I, I don't want to risk sounding like harsh, but it's not as important because you don't write it down, basically, you know. So you can work in many more fields and in many more areas as an interpreter. And as a translator, I wouldn't risk translating something I'm not fully an expert or at least very specialized mm -hmm. on. Then, of course, and this is, again, something that's common between translators and interpreters, clients not understanding the value you can bring, specifically, you know, in business settings or in, yeah, B2B cases. Like when you, for instance, I work with Chinese as well, and you know that there's a huge difference between the Chinese culture and whatever we're used to here in the so-called West, right? Mm -hmm. So the little things that someone who's an expert on the culture as well, that they can tell you, like, for instance, if you go to China in August and uh, Chinese people will always offer you hot tea, 
right? Because that, that's basically the Italian, the equivalent of the Italian coffee, or I guess British tea. Mm-hmm. If you don't accept, if you don't have the tea, the Chinese tea they're offering you, they may see it as an insult, kind of. Or at the very least, you may not start on the right foot, especially if it's a business negotiation or something. And of course, professionals do not come cheap. I always say that. Uh, and if somebody knows what they're doing, they're usually worth their, their weight in gold. And clients really struggle to understand that sometimes. And I've, uh, I've actually uh, had a couple of quotes and estimates being refused or turned down because they said, oh, we just found a Chinese guy who will do it for half the price. And I was like, okay, I mean, let's yeah. hope it works out. What do you want me to say? <laughs> so, yeah, and then amateurism, but that again, I don't want to dwell on this because I know it's a, it's a common plague. If you yeah. Finally, I think in terms of, again, value that uh, we can bring and that it's little understood in this industry, uh, it's also the fact that even if you call me to work for an hour or two, I'll still spend a lot of time preparing and studying for the assignment. So you're not just paying for the hours. I'm actually there and working with you. You're also paying for my, I mean, for me to take some time off other projects or other assignments or whatever I'm doing to really prepare and make sure that I can step it up, you know? Um, so yeah, I guess that would be the the main points. Of course, I've already mentioned this bit with but with uh, remote interpreting in general, it's really much more taxing uh, compared with you know in-person assignments and you're on your own basically because if I mean if uh, there is a power outage or if your computer suddenly shuts down, your internet connection dies on you, you have to stay calm and handle it yourself. So you have to be kind of tech savvy as well. Otherwise, you're going to be stuck and with a not so happy client, I would guess. So obviously, we've established it is a very challenging job, <laughs> but it must be quite rewarding as well. Because I mean, I guess otherwise you wouldn't do it and there wouldn't be yeah. interpreters. So what do you love about the job? Why do you do it? I, I know I've said this already, but because it's challenging <laughs> and it's something that I love personally. I mean, I love being challenged and kicked out of my comfort zone because it's always a you versus you type of situation. You know, you're always working on a knife's edge and it can be stressing, of course, but I believe it can also be, it's a work in progress. Like every day you're a work in progress and every day you're learning something new, either, you know, on a technical level, like how to overcome something difficult while interpreting or how to better handle your decollage or even like actual knowledge because you're going into very uh, thorough detail about a lot of stuff. So I first learned how capsule gels were produced a couple of years ago and I was fascinated. I was like, this is insane. The amount of technology behind this, this is amazing. Why are people, why aren't people talking about how cool this is? And yeah, well, my colleagues look at me like I was a freak, but uh, I mean, it was really (laughs) exciting to me. (laughs) Like, you know how it's made the series? Like, I would love to work for that series. Anyway, so yeah, you learn a lot of stuff and you keep studying, which is something that I love. You keep studying, you can expand on your knowledge, your existing knowledge. And then another very rewarding aspect, for instance, is when people uh, at a conference are asking actually pertinent questions. And you're like, yay, I've done my job right. (laughs) So they actually understood 
what was being said and translated. Or for instance, when people come up to you and they thank you for allowing them to speak in their native language so they can better express themselves and fully convey their meaning because they know that there's somebody you know, who has their back and can get it across. Or it's funny because sometimes people actually, it happened to me once or twice. This lady came up to me and she said, oh, great job with the speech. And I was like, thanks. Uh, so did you have the whole uh, transcript in front of you translated? And I was like, no, no, that's not how it works. <laughs> this is this is really not how it works. <laughs> no, I mean, I didn't have, I had the slides. Yes, the speaker gave us the slides beforehand. We, um, you know, we studied them, we prepared the glossaries and so on and so forth, but we didn't have the whole thing translated in front of us. And she was like, no, really? Are you kidding me? So, so you actually didn't, like, yeah, yep. <laughs> so yeah it's fun you know because people don't know much about this job but when they do learn something about it they're like wow this is fantastic you're amazing and you're like yeah thanks <laughs> that's what I think I feel like I'm learning so much from you right now I don't know very much about interpreting myself really I mean my master's was in translation and interpreting studies but I didn't actually end up doing any of the interpreting modules <laughs> I was interested in it but I just I, don't, I think I was a bit too scared, really. It can be scary. Like thinking about interpreting, like my mind is kind of blown that you can actually do that. <laughs> like, <laughs> I you. think it's incredible. Thank you. Do you have a favorite interpreting job that you've done? Yeah, actually, if I had to pick a couple of them from my you know, top five, I would say list. The first one was a Chinese, uh, English, Italian job that I did both here in Italy and in Greece. I was interpreting for a Chinese and Taiwanese delegation, and it was all about extra virgin olive oil, so one of my specialties as well. And it was not only fun, because we, of course, talked a lot about food, so yeah, that was kind of my strong suit again. But it was also really technical, and since we were traveling around and showing them around, you know, uh, southern Italy and Greece, there was also a lot of culture involved. So that was really interesting. It was, I think, the right balance between, you know, technicalities and meaningful cultural stuff that they brought home with themselves when they went, went back to China and Taiwan. So that was really fun. And that was, that was, I think, another eight days, I think. I spent around on the road and I was so exhausted after I was done. But at the same time, I was so happy I'd done it. And the second one would be, can't name names, but... There was the CEO of a multinational company and they requested me and my booth mate for this very high level meeting. And they did not say just the usual two interpreters that come here and do the thing, but they said Sabrina Spaccanti and the other guy. And when I heard about it, it was extremely scary, <laughs> but, but also extremely rewarding at the same time because I really felt like I was being valued and trusted and that I was being seen as a reliable professional. So that was really rewarding. Wow. That was amazing. And I, I really felt a lot of the pressure, of course, because when I later learned what the meeting was going to be about, I was kind of scared, <laughs> I have to say. Yeah. I mean, it kept me up at night. It really did, even though it was my usual and main specialization. But being there upon a CEO's request, I mean... That's a lot. That's really a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, I was like, okay, if they ask for us, it's because, you know, 
they know that we're good, they trust us. So deep breath and just go ahead with it. <laughs> yeah. So for anyone who is thinking that they might like to become an interpreter in the future, what sort of skills, what qualifications do you need and how do you get into the industry? All right, so uh, let's start from the easiest part. <laughs> so skills and qualifications. Mm -hmm. Qualifications-wise, it changes, I mean, it varies greatly from country to country. So at least in Italy, there is no qualification needed, which I know is insane, but I would strongly suggest to, you know, get trained because it's not something that you learn overnight. And it's a pretty steep learning curve, at least at the beginning. I mean, I remember my first ever experience in the booth after 10 minutes. I mean, I was brain dead, really. So <laughs> it takes time, you know, you build on, basically you build endurance and of course technique to interpret. So it's not something you can just learn overnight. For instance, for consecutive interpreting, there is a, the code that I was mentioning before. There are specific techniques and skills that you need to learn on note-taking and how to basically read and recall what you wrote down, which is no easy feat at times because you'll be looking at your notes like, what, what did I write? I mean, what's this? And you wrote it yourself. So, <laughs> so yeah, you need specific gradual and technical training. Of course, uh, you need to master at least languages so your native one uh, I guess yeah and at least another language a foreign language as for the skills I usually refer to what we do to multitasking on steroids yeah you need to be able to handle a lot I mean you, you need to have a lot of brain power but that again that increases over time public speaking for sure you cannot be afraid of speaking in public you cannot be stressed out if you have to stand up and have like hundreds of people listening to you potentially at the same time or know that uh, people are going to hear what you say for a whole day so you cannot be stressed by it i would say that clear enunciation is a plus as well it should be the standard of course but nobody's perfect and as i mentioned before again stress management this is one of the cornerstones of this job because if you're going to be stressed out, knowing that people are going to listen to you and ask questions based on what they've learned from you, I mean, this could not be your cup of tea, of course. Then again, everything revolving around owning a business. So customer service, client experience, marketing, negotiations, social media, you know, the whole package, basically. Mm -hmm. Now, on how to get into the market, again, this is a very geographically sensitive question, I'd say. I mean, at least in Italy, I know it's pretty hard at first. When I was first starting out, I reached out to several colleagues of mine, more expert, you know, who'd been in this industry for at least 10 or 20 years even. And one of the main questions I asked them was exactly this one. And then how long did it take you to be able to, you know, make a living out of interpreting only or mainly? And they all told me five years, best case scenario, but 10 years is more like it. So the most important advice I'd say is to network because a lot of the jobs that I get actually come from my colleagues. So I don't know, I have a colleague who works with French, German, and English, uh, but one of our clients also needs Portuguese from time to time. So she'll call me up and ask for my availability for that job or not. And conversely, I may need someone with Spanish or with German, which I do not speak. So I will 
first of all, I'll turn to my trusted colleagues, of course, and then if they're not available, I'll ask them, so do you know somebody else who can help with this and whatnot? And I know it's really hard right now because everything is being moved online. And honestly, online networking, <laughs> sometimes it's just weird because <laughs> you have a bunch of people trying to yeah. talk with each other and talking on top of each other. And I mean, it's, it's really awkward, but yeah. you can also get started if need be um, by volunteering. There are a lot of NGOs that often need interpreting, and that may be a great starting point for someone who's just graduated or who's just started out in this industry. But yeah, mainly I would say get your name out, both online and offline, of course. That's really a huge part of it. Then, you know, we can you can try with agencies, but they have lower rates, as in, I mean, mm-hmm. as in translation. And you can send out your CV or try to basically get the word out that you were there. You can do this, this, and that, and that you're available to do those things. But it may take some time. I mean, you may even get into their database or something, but they won't reach out to you until like two years later on. And two years down the road, maybe you're already, you know, you already have a client base and your rates have changed. So I, w- I would say networking is the single most important thing. Even with your professors and teachers, like from university, mm-hmm. if you're good and if you show them that you're good, so do not, again, do not be afraid to speak out in class. Like, don't do the thing where the teacher always asks, who wants to come and do this rendition of this consecutive speech or something? Just, you know, volunteer again, speak up and show people that you're proactive and willing to do it and that you can take the pressure of being judged by your peers, basically, because it's always going to get worse later on. So that's a good starting point. And if your teachers and professors see that you're actually good, they may actually ask you to, you know, come with them on an assignment, even if you're just on a dummy booth. So basically, you're there on a booth working, of course, on pay, but you have somebody who can listen to you and give you feedback on your rendition, on your output, and so on. And if they actually see that you can do it and that you're good, of course, uh, they may give you some jobs in the future. I guess any any opportunity like that, just to be someone that somebody thinks of, even if they don't have jobs right away or know of someone that needs an interpreter right away, if anything comes up and they think, oh, I need an interpreter, if you've stuck in the head and you stood out to them one time, then it, I guess it could help you in the future. Yeah. Shall we move on to all the questions that people have sent in? We had a lot of questions. Well, that's great. People are really interested in interpreting. Most of these questions, I think, are from translators who, like me, are just really genuinely curious about interpreting. <laughs> Although, actually, the first person who sent in questions is Dihia, and she's actually an MA student in translation and interpreting. So I think she's maybe thinking about becoming an interpreter in the future. And she asks, where can she practice her interpreting skills? So I guess you've already said sort of volunteer work can be good, but do you have any other tips for her? There are a lot of sites, actually not a lot, but a couple of good sites online. Uh, So the speech repository Mm -hmm. from the EU that has a lot of videos, short videos, where she can practice based on the interpreting mode, so consecutive or simultaneous, and the level. So you have beginner, advanced, etc., or even test type, I think, uh, which should be the most advanced level. 
there are some practice groups actually, and they've popped up. Uh, they were there before, but they've really become much more famous now, you know, with the pandemic and everything. So she can sign up for those. I think that those are basically free sessions where all members actively and passively listen to their colleagues and then interpret, of course, when it's their turn. And then they give feedbacks to one another. So that could be a good place to start. I mean, she's as crazy as I am. She would, she can try with podcasts as well, but that's really hard because uh, people are not, I mean, it's different. It's completely different from interpreting a speech, but that's a good rule of thumb. You know, if you can do that, you're good to go. With videos, she can take videos from YouTube and I don't know, a speech from a politician or from conferences that are online and she can try that as well. I mean, the, the most important thing is that if you're doing that solo, that you have to record yourself so that you can listen to yourself and you know write down whatever mistakes you've made or if you generalize something, if you have omitted something. So you, you have basically a self-analysis, a self-assessment. And of course, the, the best thing would do to have somebody else do that, to give you a feedback, because it's different when someone else is listening to you compared with what you know you were thinking and maybe, you know, cutting yourself some slack because you say, yeah, yeah, right. But that part was hard. So I had to do that and whatnot. But yeah, if you have to do it solo, just record yourself and go check the speech repository out. Sounds like some great tips. Our next question is from Eva, and she says that she would like to know whether you had trouble hearing one language and speaking another at the start of your career. And if you did, is that something that improves over time? Yeah, 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 it surely does. And at the beginning, it is really confusing. I mean, especially so if the two languages you're working with are similar, say Italian and Spanish or Italian and Portuguese, for example, there are some transfers. So I remember saying, yeah, this, this does not make me look great, but let's be honest here. Everybody makes mistakes. So basically, bank in Portuguese is banco. And in Italian, I said banco instead of banca. But banco, it's a completely different thing. So yeah. And when I hear myself doing that, I'm like, are you stupid or what? But yeah, it's... Really, it's really hard, but it does get better over time. And I actually encourage everyone to make a lot of mistakes as soon as they can, because the sooner you learn from them, the sooner, I mean, the sooner they stuck with you. And the next time I'll be so embarrassed by remembering that I said banco instead of banca, but I won't do it again, you know? Yeah, I guess that's the thing. It's a big difference between interpreting and translation there is that in interpreting you can't go back and correct your mistakes because you just have to move on to the next thing whereas in translation you've got (laughs) forever you can go back and you can reread it a few times well you do actually but you have to be smart about it like if that was a major mistake and it's going to compromise the whole sense of the whole speech then yes you absolutely should do it you should be careful uh, about how much time you devote to this for instance, again, with the banco banca thing, and then banco, mm, I apologize, banca, and then you move on. I mean, it's something, it's a couple of seconds. It's not going to screw entirely up your <laughs> your ambition. So, yeah, I mean, you can go back. You just have to be smart about it. Nicola asks, what methods do you use when your brain doesn't immediately deliver a word or phrase you need to interpret unexpected vocabulary? 
<laughs> so that happens quite a lot. And not just with, with vocabulary, but I would say what throws me the most is the changing register. So you're at a meeting, let's say business meeting. So the register is medium high, I guess. And then someone throws their like a dialect expression or a very, you know, low register idiom. And that kind of throws you more than vocabulary. So I usually try to fill in the void because that's a huge black void that's going on in my brain. Like, how do I work around this? I usually fill in the void by using a synonym. Like, let's say they just said, I don't know, computer. And I say, so the computer, so a PC, a personal computer. So I try not to leave any prolonged pauses and silent pauses, or I try not to fill the pauses with, mm, uh, mm, uh, mm. I mean, this, this fillers, they're called fillers. They, they really sound bad <laughs> to, to whoever is listening to you if you use them too much. And I try to think about uh, how can I work around it and just, if I can, I mean, if the speech allows me to do so, I continue on. And when I do come up with the solution, I just say a little bit later on, as soon as the sentence is finished, for instance, or <laughs> if that's a unexpected vocabulary, I try to look it up. I mean, at some point you learn how to do that as well while you're interpreting. <laughs> so I always have my glossaries with me. And I also have a, I mean, a notepad that I write things down on, especially the words that I know I'm going to struggle the most with or uh, recurrent names, acronyms, uh, numbers, whatever data that may actually make me sound like I'm struggling because <laughs> I am probably. <laughs> so to avoid that, uh, I try to, to prepare as much as possible beforehand. And when, I, when we do get the document, that's, that's much, much, much easier. Because even if it's not like you don't pre-translate the whole slides, I mean, unless you really, really need to, but that's a lot of time wasted. I, I try to look up the words that I could not come up with on the spot while I'm reading the slides. Uh, so that usually makes it. <laughs> but on the, yeah, during the actual interpreting, if I'm not able to come up with the right solution at the right time, be it for vocabulary or a change in register or an idiom. I mean, idioms are really hard to render on the spot like that. Like, unless there are the usual few ones that everybody uses. But then again, I have a glossary of those two. This is, again, control free. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> but yeah, that would be my main, my main solution. Nicola also asks, how do you handle the sometimes inevitable pauses that result when translating complex constructions such as multiple dependent clauses from a subject object verb to a subject verb object language such as Italian or Mandarin to English? Do you consider and fill them in or do you lean into them for the sake of comprehension? I usually fill them in because I, I don't really like hearing what I call a hiccupy rendition. So pauses, 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 and then some words and verbs out there in the middle, like doesn't really make any sense. So I'd rather repeat myself, perhaps again with synonyms or uh, repeating something that has been said before, which fits the context, of course. It's not like we're talking about a, a table and then a chair. It's not like I'm going to start talking about a TV in the middle. So I'm going to keep it, you know, <laughs> I'm going to keep it consistent, if you will. 
But for, for instance, with Chinese, that's a really tough question because much like English, the adjective or adverb comes before the noun or the verb, right? Uh, which is not a given in Italian because Italian is really flexible. Uh, like syntax-wise, you can put it before or after. I mean, we're pretty messy in that as well. <laughs> but um, <laughs> this just means that, for instance, if you have a, an official meeting and there's a Chinese delegate, they will start with the name of the association, then their position within the association or business or whatever it is, and then the name of the person. So in that case, I either know what I'm talking, going to be talking about, so I can start and just reverse it because I know they're going there, or I wait a little bit to start talking, at least until they get to the position within the institution or association or company or whatever. And then I have to keep in mind, of course, what was said before and add it at the end. We also have a few questions from Graham, who I believe is also an interpreter. And his first question is, what do you think is the maximum length of time an interpreter can operate effectively? Usually when you're working with somebody else, which again is the rule, you divide into 30 minute shifts. I mean, it's happened to me in the past to work even for 40 to 45 minutes. It was an emergent, an emergency situation, of course. Say my, my partner wasn't okay, had to go to the bathroom, take a personal urgent call, whatever. If I know what I'm doing and if it's not completely new to me, it's fine. You can carry on. But that's already in the red zone, really. So usually when you're done with your 30 minutes, you rest for the following 30 minutes. And then depending on who you're working with and how you're used to working with that person. I mean, some people actually take a complete break. Like they say, listen, I'm not going to stay here and listen the whole thing the whole time to write down numbers or names uh, if they come up for you. So basically it's not, I mean... It's not maliciously, but you're on your own, right? Because I need to take a break. I really need to disconnect. Instead, other people may keep on listening to the conference or speech or whatever's going on to help you out if you need to, but you're still resting because, I mean, you're not act actively interpreting. So usually that's a 30-minute uh, active work and 30-minute passive work or disconnection, if you will. So that's usually it. I think that anywhere in between the 35 to 40, 45 minutes, I mean, you shouldn't really get there unless it's an emergency, unless it's a one-off situation, because it's not like you're going to recover after that. I mean, if you still have several hours to go, your brain is going to feel it <laughs> and it's going to talk to you and you're not going to like what it says. <laughs> so just, you know, 30 minutes stops, in the ideal world, it would be the best, uh, not over 40 mm -hmm. to 45, definitely. Say so you were doing that and you started at like nine in the morning and you did 30 minutes on, 30 minutes off. For how many hours in the whole day do you think you could do that for? Again, in the ideal world, uh, an interpreter's working day shouldn't last more than seven hours with several breaks in between. So coffee break, lunch break, you name it, break. That doesn't really happen quite often because, again, I've never been on a conference that's finished on time. So lots of people would just go like, yeah, let's cut the lunch break short and just go on for another hour. And 
of course, they're not thinking about the interpreters <laughs> at that time. Uh, they rarely do anyway. So I've, I mean, I've had 10 to 11 hours working days. I mean, once you're there, it's not like, I mean, you can tell the client, look, after my eight hour work, this is my overtime fee, et cetera, et cetera. But if you like your client and if you would like to keep that client, it's not like you're just going to turn off the mic and say, bye, I'm done for the day, right? There should be flexibility and respect on both sides, of course. But usually if I start at nine in the morning, I'm usually done by five or six, give or take. Uh, really depends on the individual mm-hmm. case, though. Yeah. Graham also asked, what are your thoughts on remote interpreting? Tiring. <laughs> well, no, well. I, I don't mind it. We are all making do with what we have, sort of, I guess, given the overall worldwide situation. What I like about remote interpreting is that since I don't live in downtown Milan or in a big city, I have to travel a lot to get, you know, the venue of the day. So for me, it's mm-hmm. been a major gain in, t- in terms of uh, productive time. On the other hand, again, you're on your own. So if you have any issues, you're on your own. Uh, your booth mate's not physically there. So when you have to talk to them or like say, even just for saying, I'm leaving the workstation for five minutes because I'm making a coffee, going to the bathroom or whatever, that's a distraction because you're texting someone while they're working, right? So, mm. I mean, that's that's really hard. I think that the the good side of remote interpreting is that a lot of people can now access a lot of opportunities they couldn't access before. Uh, and that could mean huge savings for conference organizers because you no longer need to fly someone in or pay for accommodation and so on. On the other hand, this has not certainly helped improve or increase the awareness that clients have uh, when it comes to interpreting, because again, they just, they think that you're just showing up, translating, and then you're gone, right? But mm-hmm. no, because you have to study, you have to prepare for the assignment, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of people actually have started coming and asking for your services, basically, with pre-made budgets. So they're like, yeah, I have 200 euros and I need you to interpret for me for five hours. And you're like, no, this is not how it works, (laughs) my dude. No. (laughs) I mean, we can talk about it. We can meet halfway, I guess, or something, but this is not how it works. And it's since I'm doing it from home, from my own computer, with my own computer, with my own headphones and mic and internet connection, et cetera, that's money you're saving and that I'm spending. It's a little different. It's not like you would just like walk into the hairdressers and be like, hey, I've got five pounds. Give me a haircut. Like <laughs> they'd just be like, no, our haircuts cost this much. Like you Go don't away. do it for any, <laughs> yeah, you don't do it for any other sort of service where you just go in and tell them how much you want to pay for their service. Like I find that <laughs> I get yeah. that as well a bit with translation, but I can imagine with interpreting, it might be, it's an extra thing for them to actually understand all of the costs and everything that go into what you're doing. I try to explain why that's not okay without getting pedantic. Like I try to educate them without being pedantic if I see that it's worth it, you know, because I don't want to be wasting my time lecturing people. And 
knowing already that there may not be room for improvement in that sense. So I, I try to say, look, I can't do 200 euros for five hours because A, B, C, D. If you want to go ahead, we can talk about prices. We can talk about this or that and so on and so forth. But I mean, it's complicated. And I've seen an increase. I've really seen a rise in this type of situations uh, with the rise again of RSI and remote interpreting in general. But I've also been very lucky to gain new clients who are very respectful of what I do and basically tell me, look, you're the professional, just tell me how how this is done. Basically, I may not have had access to those clients or I may not have gained those clients if the pandemic hasn't come. So mm-hmm. I guess we're all just trying to play with the cards we're dealt. Yeah. <laughs> One last question from Graeme, which is what are your thoughts on interpreting both target and source languages in the same meeting? I I mean, been there, done that. It's kind of a weird question in a good way because it's, I I don't think it's ever happened to me to only interpret into one language, either target or source. I mean, it's usually a lot of back and forth. So of course, again, it's tiring. It's much more taxing on your brain because you have to juggle the two languages, both active and passive at the same time. I work a lot with private businesses and in the so-called private sector. So that's kind of a given. It's not like in the EU or uh, other institutions where you only go into one language, be it your target or source, native or foreign. So that's kind of what I've always done and learned at university as well. So I mean, it's something that's needed. You just do it. (laughs) That's fair enough. Next question is from Kathy, who asks, how did you develop your note-taking skills? She says that this is something that she's always found difficult at uni. Lots of coffee, lots of blood and tears. (laughs) No, just kidding. So note-taking is a very, again, individual and particular thing. And it's very context-bound. So let's say the same acronym, for instance, my name and surname, SS, may mean something in that context. And on a completely different assignment, I may reuse the same acronym or the same symbol, meaning something else entirely. I think it's really individual, again, and the context bound, because you can develop a set of master symbols, if you will, like for basic concepts, like, I don't know, person or president or water, rain, fire, (laughs) I don't know, you know, very basic core concepts. Like for instance, I use a lot of basic Chinese characters, which are really quick and easy to do. For instance, the one for person, which is two strokes, very quick and very easy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or when I worked at a fire safety engineering conference, Brilliant, by the way, there was a lot of fire involved, right? And a lot of water, of course. So yeah, I went for those very easy Chinese characters in that case. But mainly, again, what I think really helps a lot is uh, preparing yourself thoroughly beforehand. So you know that there are going to be, I don't know, four different speakers rotating for the whole day. So you have their acronyms down and you have the main symbols for the main concepts you're going to be talking about so that you basically leave free RAM for your brain to work on the part that you actually have to remember. 
because when you take notes, it's not like you're transcribing the whole speech, of course, you wouldn't mm -hmm. possibly uh, be able to do it. So you have to memorize some part of it and then you write down basically the, the, the gist of it, the, the main parts, the main concepts, so SVO and connections in between one idea and the other. And in between, you have to remember what was being said, how it's been said, etc. So I, I rely a lot on my memory. I'm not a huge uh, consecutive note taker. So yeah, I really rely a lot on memory. So I may not be the best person to talk about note taking, uh, but I do mm -hmm. know a lot of great books about it. If she wants, I can recommend them. Okay, I could put them in the show notes. So Renata would like to know, what is your favorite interpreting technique or strategy and why? So when it comes to simultaneous interpreting, and I've mentioned the collage already, so how much time passes starting from the moment you first hear something and when you first start translating something. So I, I mean, when the situation allows me to do so, I really stick really closely to the speaker because that really sort of tranquilizes me <laughs> that I'm not having to remember what was being said in the, you know, the thing you've mentioned before having to remember what was being said while you're translating something that's been said already while listening to what's being said now. It's a huge mess. So I try to avoid it altogether and really stick closely to the pace of the, of the speaker, which of course isn't always possible because Italian, for instance, is very lengthy, like really lengthy. We say a lot of long words. <laughs> But for instance, when I'm going from Italian into English or Portuguese Italian, which are similar uh, duration wise. So I try to stick to the speaker as closely as possible to avoid falling too much behind. Then again, when there are holes or when the speaker suddenly stops or when they just take their speech in a completely different direction and you're stuck there with whatever was, I mean, was, was trying to be said was you guess that was being said? I don't know. If you can take the risk of closing the sentence in a neutral way, I do like to do that because uh, I think it makes my, my output much more pleasant <laughs> to hear and much smoother. But again, only if it's risk-free because uh, I don't want to be putting words in people's mouths. What more? Yeah, if there are pauses or if something happens, for instance, if the, I don't know, the speaker's phones rings or something. I'll add synonyms to, uh, to what's just being said, like, I don't know, closing remarks, uh, final comments. So what are we going to finish this conversation on? You know, this kind of things. And I always try to keep the same tone, like not a flat one, of course, but uh, I try not to make me sound like I'm panicking, if that makes any sense. I try to keep it very, very professional and very pleasant and very smooth and very ladylike. <laughs> and I, I think that this is bas this basically all boils down to the fact that it gives me peace of mind. So that would be my main thing. I have to stay calm while I'm working, you know, so I, I can't be worrying about stuff. So it's, it really requires a lot of focus and concentration. So I have to be okay with what I'm doing and I have to know that I got it under control because again I may have said this already but yeah control freak <laughs> so yeah this everything that gives me peace of mind techniques wise while I'm working it's I'll turn to that it's like the analogy with a graceful swan and then their feet are like going crazy underneath the water that you can only see the swan just floating on 
<laughs> me, that's me. That would be me. Like I know what I'm doing. I have it under I, I have it under control. And then you're like paddling like crazy for me. Like <laughs> frantically looking up words on your computer and you're trying to be quiet, like not to type up too too hard on your keyboard because otherwise people are gonna hear. <laughs> I bet that's another technique you have to master to be an interpreter, really quiet typing. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And and that's another very important thing. I mean, that's the reason why while you're working simultaneously, that's the reason why uh, both partners actually write things down one for the other because you cannot even you cannot even whisper it because these microphones are really sensitive. They'll pick up anything. So it happened to me once. I was actually at university, so no no problem with that. But uh, I I really wanted to help out my my friend. Uh, she was stuck. She was completely stuck. Like she stopped talking. And I was like, like whispering whatever I was trying to say to her. I don't remember. And then when we got out of the booth, teacher said, the teacher said like a booth number two who was in it. And we raised our hands, you know, she was like, yeah, whoever whispered, nope, you don't do that. And I'm like, okay, fine. I, I'm not doing that again. So you also mastered the art of writing down graciously and quietly, <laughs> like, with no bracelets or noisy jewelry um, in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> Quite a few people have asked about the stressful side of interpreting. Like, is it as stressful as it seems? And how do you deal with all of that stress? So, uh, yeah, it is stressful, definitely. Uh, I think I've said this <laughs> this more than once during this episode, but it's it really is. I mean, there's no way around it. I won't sugarcoat it for anyone. It is stressful, and you have to be able to deal with that. There are several different ways, of course, uh, and for me, again, what I find that helps me the most is getting really ready, like studying a lot before getting into the booth or starting a job, because I know that that gives me tranquility. <laughs> like I know that I've, I'm prepared, that I've studied. So the emotional part of it is much more under control. That way, I do not take assignments for which I'm not prepared enough. I don't like biting off more than I can chew, if that makes sense. Like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really careful because it's, it's a matter of image and reputation as well. You know, uh, what I was saying before about a lot of work coming in from colleagues. I mean, that's a really important part as well. So your reputation and being able to, to handle it, basically, both from a technical and linguistic and emotional point of view. Another thing that really helps me a lot de-stress <laughs> or handle it is actually physically holding on to something, like beat my pen or my pad or... I mean, I've clung on to my phone for dear life more than once. I was like in the booth, super stressed. And I was like holding my phone. Like it was really my lifesaver, my anchor in the sea or something. <laughs> so my hands keep busy because I still get emotional. Like <laughs> before starting an assignment, I can still hear my heart pounding. My hands are kind of shaky. And I know that I'm going to be a little like on the edge when I start but once you start working you basically get I mean I, I know it doesn't sound really nice but you get sucked in into what you're doing and so you stop thinking about it 
and you you really have to focus to do this so you you basically don't have time you don't have brain power left to worry <laughs> and if you have brain power left to worry that's a bad sign that's a really bad sign and you should consider if this is something that you want to be doing because it's basically putting yourself under a lot of stress so if you're able to handle it then you should consider going on with it and it's all fine you know but if that's too much why would you do that to yourself <laughs> like there are so many other things you can do like don't don't do this to yourself and i've found that uh doing something like manual work afterwards or before or working out basically so whatever way you like running weights yoga you name it just find your thing and do it and find something that completely make, that makes you completely disconnect from what you've done from the day you've had or what you're about to do so that you basically give your brain time off because i mean i i, I tend to find that interpreters uh, much like translators never really stop working it may be a badly translated something on a menu at the restaurant or a badly translated website or i mean i've been watching csi at night it's dubbed in italian and it sucks so i'm like grudging on and dwelling on things and my husband is like will you stop working <laughs> but i can so you really have to find something that gives your brain some time off yeah that's mm-hmm. that really helps a lot I know what you mean with that because I find myself I mean a lot of the work I do is subtitling and in the evenings I like to watch TV I like to watch Netflix but my current favorite thing to watch is Korean dramas and I don't speak <laughs> Korean so I'm constantly like obviously it's subtitled in English yeah. and like I'm constantly sort of analyzing the subtitles and almost my brain is kind of trying to learn Korean at the same time and I'm like no I just, I just want to enjoy this this episode but it's hard to disconnect from work things a lot of the time <laughs> I'll be even back translating stuff like I'm watching this I don't know movie or TV show I never watched anything in Italian anymore because I just you know keep working <laughs> so i'd rather just go and watch it in the original language which tends to be english most of the time and there was this the other night there was this episode again it was csi and this guy said something like in italian of course i got your call but like literally and the the italian equivalent sounded like i have received your request in my hands like i physically have it and i was like no no <laughs> I mean no you don't have the request you you have received it like a normal person you do not hold in your hands the request like yeah yeah so time off for your brain does wonders for your mental and professional health <laughs> the last questions we've had a few questions from Anna and her first question is do you use any tools or have you got a special system for terminology management Yes, I do. Um I'm a big fan of Interpret Bank, which I find very 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 helpful both for the um terminology extraction features. For instance, when you create a bilingual or multilingual if you want glossary, you can then upload documents in there based on the language and then based on the frequency of uh, the words, it will it it will basically extract a list of words of the most frequent ones or recurring ones which is really helpful and then i really like the fact that it has a booth mode so 
you can just create your glossary and of course you can import or export your glossaries both in the interpret bank native format which i don't remember what it is but it also works with excel files which are the basic like <laughs> glossary building tool we tend to use or with word files as well so you can just then activate booth mode and you I have a very powerful IA-based system to look up words, which is very, very, very good and very fast compared with Excel. I mean, Excel is rubbish. <laughs> Sorry, Excel. But uh, your search feature should be greatly improved. And most of all, even if you like play around and type stuff, you don't risk screwing up because you cannot edit the entries in the glossaries. So I'm such a klutz. So this is very important to me that I don't accidentally like erase or edit my entries while I'm working because I'm frantically, again, frantically but silently looking up words. <laughs> but yeah, there are other systems, but I, I haven't personally tried them. I've always used, uh, you know, Excel or Google Sheets if I had to work on a collaborative like glossary of sorts. But uh, yeah, that would be my, my main go-to tool. And then, of course, I use Sketch Engine for collocations, entries in context. You know, it's very important to me, mainly because of what we were saying before. Like, uh, so we work both into our native and target languages. So I want to make sure I, I actually get it right before I say it. Anna also asks, what do you do if you literally don't have a clue what the person is talking about, even after careful prep for the event? Okay, so yeah, I, oh, that's the comment I responded to on LinkedIn because, yeah, it's a very controversial uh, topic. I mean, it, it would deserve a whole episode on its own. <laughs> but yeah, so there are basically two choices. And let's be honest, everyone's faced them and everyone's taken that risk. If you do have a sense, like even a slight sense of where the speaker may be going, you can try and fill in the blanks, basically, and make it make sense for whoever's listening to you. But it's happened to me actually not too long ago. I think it was two to three weeks ago. So mm -hmm. Italians have this very specific way of asking questions by making a 10 minutes long comment and then asking the question in the end. And by the end of the 10 minute comment, everybody has forgotten what the matter was like beforehand <laughs> so this guy rambled on for like 10 minutes and then he asked the question and I had absolutely no idea where the guy was going it was so confused and he said it itself by the end of the ramble slash question part he said I don't know if I was clear enough or if this was a little confused and of course I translated so so in that case I really kept it literal I really had no idea what the guy was trying to ask. And then like the person who was listening to me said the same sentence. You know, it was a little confused. Would you mind repeating what your question was? So I was like, okay, not my fault though, right? I mean, if there's any liability to be to be given or taken here, I'm just the middleman. But yeah, so you can either try and steer the rendition a little, but again, it's really risky and you you have to be really mindful or what you're saying and in what context you're saying it. Like, for instance, I work in a lot of board of directors meetings, and that's not something I would do in that case because it's on the record and, well, I'm going to be transcribing the meeting itself. So I'd rather be careful. If it's more of an informal context, I mean, you can try. 
you can try and basically take it somewhere and abandoning there before it burns on you and explodes on you like a speech bomb or something. <laughs> Otherwise, just stick to it. And I know that's that's awful because whoever is listening to you, again, has no idea what the original person in a speech is saying. So they're like, okay, this interpreter is rubbish. <laughs> I mean, she or he has no clue of what they're doing, right? But there's no magical button to say like I'm just translating it faithfully but I have no idea what this guy is saying as well so please don't hate me like I'm doing my job right (laughs) but yeah that's really that's that's one of the I would say the main issues you can actually face during interpreting like because everything else you can deal with right pauses or somebody cutting their sentence or sentence structure or not having preparation material, whatever, you can deal with that. But when somebody is uncomprehensible, I mean, what do you do? There are, I, I see two main choices. So, and these are the two ones that I usually resort to unless I have like happier options in front of myself. <laughs> Would it be unprofessional to sort of, cause I guess everything you're saying has to be what that person is saying. Are you allowed to sort of come out of that and ask them a question as the interpreter or is that completely not allowed? So in a liaison or consecutive setting, yes, you can do that. Uh, I mean, careful how you say it, of course. I had sometimes asked uh, before a speaker, so please let me just clarify what do you mean with or just to make sure I got it right. Is this the question that you wanted to ask or something before moving on and translating it for whoever was listening to me. When you're doing simultaneous interpreting, you can't. I mean, there are a few cases where you can sort of uh, detach yourself and like speak in the third person, like the interpreter says or the speaker says, like with profanity, for instance. There are lots of people who are not as happy (laughs) to repeat profanity or to translate profanity or more sensitive opinions or sensitive topics for instance and I've I've heard actually before somebody say somebody interpret and then stop and say the speaker said swear word or whatever it was you know so in that case you can sort of signal that it wasn't you because it it may be I mean the person made out right Uh, so did she did the interpreter swear or was the speaker swearing and the interpreter just translated it like but yeah it would it would not be professional definitely If somebody comes up and sort of challenges your rendition, you may say, look, I was just translating faithfully what I was listening to, but these are the speaker's words, not mine. But that may come at a later point. So while you're doing a simultaneous interpreting assignment and if this type of situation happens, you can, I mean, I've never heard of people doing it and I've personally wouldn't do it I I mean I'll just take the blame you know if I have to have you ever been in that in a situation where you felt uncomfortable with what was being said and felt like you really didn't want to even like be a part of saying that in another language yeah yeah more than once and since then I have actually kind of changed my policy And I've actually explicitly written that out in my terms and conditions. So whatever you say, 
And however you say it, I'm going to translate it. So please do not expect me to be your nanny and tell you, you know, especially in a simultaneous uh, interpreting assignment, I'm not going to sugarcoat what you say. So if you swear or if you insult someone, my duty is to actually convey that meaning in that specific sense. It's a different story if you ask me like, oh, do you think that they'll be offended if I say this before asking me to translate it? That's different. But I have been in that kind of situation and it's horrible because you're torn, right? Because your duty is to be impartial and to just say whatever it's being said in the way it's being said so faithfully in all senses. On the other hand, you'll realize that if you do translate faithfully, that may actually sink the ship. For instance, if it's a business negotiation, again, it, the, the quickest example that comes to my mind is with Chinese people. We drink lots of coffee here in Italy, right? So we had long, very long meetings and everybody was drained. And right in the afternoon, they would keep on offering coffee to these Chinese guys. And they would uh, politely accept and then start hyperventilating because they're not used to that much caffeine. Like <laughs> the poor things were like sweating and, and their heart rate was up like <laughs> racing. Uh, and they were completely like, they were really sweating it, but they, they accepted the coffee. And so it kind of became in that occasion, you know, the coffee break was kind of an occasion to stop the works and take a breather and whatnot. And so they were like, why are the Chinese guys also drinking the tea? Do they not like our coffee? Ah, this is an insult to our national coffee. I was like, do you want me to translate that? Are you sure? Do you think it's a good idea for me to tell them that they're insulting you by not drinking the eighth coffee of the day? Are you sure? That's different though. And that's just, you know, that's just funny. But uh, I have been in kind of awkward situations where I've had to translate people insulting other people. That's what they said. That's how they said it. I mean, it's, it's on them. Like they know that you're there to say, to translate every single thing they say. So if they're going to insult the other person, then they should know that you're going to translate that. Also because it's not my place to intervene and to kind of edit what's being said, right? Imagine if I didn't do it and then this thing later on came out for whatever reason and the client found out that I haven't translated exactly what they said, exactly the way they've said it, etc. Not, I mean, intentionally. So on purpose, I've edited them and sugar-coated something or not sugar-coated something. Uh, depending on the specific case. So how would that make me look? And how would that make me feel? I mean, mm -hmm. I wouldn't want a professional to not do their job because something that's being said, it's uncomfort uncomfortable, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. The next question is something that I'm also really interested in because as I kind of mentioned before similarly to Anna I see interpreters as being on like another level Anna describes it as a godlike <laughs> status um how do you as an interpreter view the translation profession slash translators and do you think there is any kind of superiority complex there is there definitely is from interpreters towards translators as I mentioned in the beginning I do both 
And I actually love translating. I mean, a lot of interpreters don't do it because they say it's boring or it's not as, uh, well, I mean, it doesn't pay the same way. That's a fact. So if, if you do uh, an hourly fee comparison, that's really different, of course, unless you're doing something ultra specialized. But yeah, I mean, there is a lot of superiority from interpreters uh, towards translators, which I think it's unfair because, I mean, those are two different things. It's like saying, look at my old Fiat from 1998. It doesn't go as fast as a Ferrari. It's like, it's not a matter of what's best. It's do two different things. And I, I, I mean, I don't think it's fair. Also because, again, I, I love translating and I think it, it makes me a better interpreter because it makes me more precise in my terminology. So since I also translate a lot of what I interpret, usually I have already, you know, studied, so to speak, the precise terminology. And so I will try to go for the exact right equivalent or translation for that specific term instead of just paddling around in my mind, like looking for something close enough, but that's not quite it. So yeah, I, I do know a lot of, uh, of translators who are not interpreters who <laughs> see us, I guess. Uh, I don't like the us versus the others kind of thing, but yeah, just to simplify matters. Mm -hmm. um, who see interpreters as these like super humans <laughs> whose brains can do amazing stuff. And it's true, we can, I mean, our brains can do amazing stuff, but it's not like we were born with it. It's not like we didn't sweat to get here. So it's training. It all boils down to, of course, you have to be talented and you have to be to have a knack for it. But it all comes down to training, to how hard you study and how many hours you're willing to put in to work towards this goal. So it's not like you're a godlike. Again, you don't have a godlike status. It's somebody who can do something pretty amazing and taxing on the brain, but that's just it. I wouldn't feel better or superior to anyone because of this. I mean, it would just be really sad if I did. <laughs> like, what kind of person would I be? <laughs> like, no. I think, like, you already know that what you do is incredible and it's amazing, but that doesn't mean that you don't think that what other people do is also incredible and what they do, I guess. Exactly. So it's kind of like, it's not being superior is just having different different values and different skills and I I know that I'm I'm good at translating but I know that I'm not good at translating everything right so for instance literary translation that's something completely out of my depth and I think that literary translators are completely freaking amazing like it's not just translating it's another layer another level of art right? But I don't think that they're better than technical translators because of it. And, and I mean, or like, I don't know, people who code and computer engineers, like that's freaking magic to me. <laughs> that's completely, I'm, I'm amazed at the things that they can do. But I don't think they're better or worse than anyone because of that. So yeah, there is this kind of superiority yeah. complex, which I think it's kind of childish, really. But uh, if that makes you feel better, I mean, if that makes your heart sing, whatever. <laughs> it's, again, it's two different things. Like, what's the point of saying I'm able to juggle two languages at once because that's what I do for a living and you don't because that's not what you do for a living. 
like what would be the point sorry uh, i've rambled on on this because it, it's it's really close to my heart i understand the final question also from anna it kind of relates to this and i know you said that you do both interpreting and translation but does it annoy you when people refer to interpreting slash interpreters as translating or translators do you correct them or do you just leave it <laughs> depends on the day i'm having <laughs> to be honest like it might very mildly annoys me and i may sort of passive aggressive correct them like you're the translator yes i'm the interpreter like that's the that's what i say i don't do like no i'm not a translator i'm an interpreter <laughs> i mean just, you know yeah. so it, it's it is mildly annoying because it's two different things and i mean i'm a staunch believer in using the right words uh, for the right mm-hmm. things and and speaking mindfully if you will so <laughs> like calling a spade a spade and calling a translator a translator and an interpreter an interpreter because that's what they do, right? Mm-hmm. But I thought, again, to, to go back to the whole superiority thing, I, I don't get annoyed by it because uh, I know mm-hmm. that it's just, um, how to say this, ignorance uh, in the sense that they do not know that there is actually a difference, not because they're uneducated, ignorant people. Uh, but yeah, I do correct them Again, depends on the day I'm having. Sometimes I'll just, I'm just too tired and I'll just let it slide. Or uh, if I do, I'm usually <laughs> very, uh, I, I try not to be too blunt about it. Like, yes, I'm the interpreter. Or if, I, I, again, one of my main clients always says, let me remind you that this meeting is assisted with a simultaneous translation service. And I usually go, this meeting is assisted with a simultaneous interpreting service. Or like when I say, good morning, this is your interpreter speaking from the booth. The meeting is going to start in five minutes. As soon as the meeting starts, we're going to start interpreting. And people are like, oh, you're tra- the translator. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> At the end of the day, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to whatever you want to call it. <laughs> That's all of the questions. And this is <laughs> the longest podcast. <laughs> I'm sorry, I've rambled on for too much. <laughs> no, it's good. Now that we sort of come to the end of the episode, I would just like to thank you so much for coming on here. Thank you for for having me. And sharing so much about your experience and all of your knowledge, because I have learned so much and (laughs) it's been so valuable. If anyone wants to ask you any more questions or they want to get in touch with you, where can they find you? So I'm on Instagram as sabrinasbacanti underscore interpreter. And you may find me on dots, likes, or <laughs> or posts sometimes, so I'll be there. I'm on LinkedIn as well. Again, Sabrina's Bacanti. I'm a very creative person, <laughs> just my name and surname. And I have a, my own website on sabrinasbacanti.com. Again, it's very, very easy for you to find mm-hmm. out. And if you have any more questions, of course, I'd be happy to answer them. I'll write those down in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for coming on. Enjoy the rest of your day. And... Goodbye. Bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Sabrina. I certainly learned a lot today. Head to the show notes for Sabrina's website and how to get in touch with her, as well as her book recommendations for budding interpreters. In the next episode of the Meet the Translator podcast series, I'll be joined by Silke Lurman, who's going to tell us all about her experience doing a PhD in translation. 
If you have any comments about the podcast or questions for Silka, please send an email to meetthetranslator at gmail.com. Thanks again to Sabrina for being on the podcast and thank you to everyone who sent in their questions.